Hi, it's Laurence Bradford. Welcome to season two of the Learn to Code with Me podcast, where I'm chatting with people who taught themselves how to code and are now doing amazing things with their newly found skills. Want to get into the most selective coding boot camps? Check out Flatiron School's bootcamp prep course. With over 70 hours of curriculum, you'll go from code newbie to acing the bootcamp admissions process. For a limited time, access the course for free. Head to flatironbootcampprep.com today. Zojo is a development tool for creating native apps for desktop, mobile, web, and Raspberry Pi. Zojo offers lots of resources to help you get started learning modern programming. Learn to Code With Me listeners get 20% off with the coupon LEARN20. Try Zojo for free at zojo.com forward slash learn to code. Zojo is spelled like X-O-J-O. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Learn to Code With Me podcast. I am your host, Laurence Bradford. Wow, it's already the 19th episode in season two. Time sure does fly when you're having fun. And I truly hope your 2017 has been off to a great start. In today's episode, I talk with Harj Tagar, the founder and CEO at TripleByte. TripleByte is a website that helps software engineers land jobs at top tech companies. However, before getting into tech in the world of startups, Harj studied law in the UK. In our conversation, Harj shares how he first began building startups, moved to Silicon Valley shortly after finishing university, later became the first non-founding partner at Y Combinator, and much more. Harsh's story is truly awesome. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Remember, you can get show notes for this episode plus a full transcript at learntocodewith.me forward slash podcast. Enjoy. Hey, Harsh, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, hey, Lawrence, thanks so much for having me. Yes, of course, I'm really excited to talk to you today. But first, could you introduce yourself to the audience? Uh, yep, sure. I'm Harsh Tagger. I'm co-founder and CEO of TripleByte. Uh, it's a company that uh, helps software engineers get matched with top technology companies. And uh, previous to that, I was uh, the first non-founding partner at Y Combinator. Yes, amazing. And in case uh, the listeners can't tell, Harsh is from the UK originally, correct? Yes, that is true. I moved <laughs> out to Silicon Valley in 2007. And you haven't turned back since? No, I actually came out for three months initially to see what it was like and sort of coming up to 10 years later and still here. Oh, wow. That's wow, 10 years. That's, that's amazing. So I want to kind of backtrack a bit. I was uh, looking at your background uh, before we started the call, and I saw that you studied law in college. Yep, this is absolutely true. So was your plan, and I guess it may be different in the UK, I'm really only familiar with like the US, but was your plan to become a lawyer or get into politics or something? Ah, uh, so a few few things going on there. So one, one, studying law in the UK is slightly different to America in that you can study as an undergraduate degree. Um, and it was, it's not so much actually sort of practical, hard, like law that leaves you qualified to be a lawyer. It's more theory of law, what is a legal system, and um, uh, and sort of slightly slight politics, slight philosophy, that that kind of stuff. Um, and my the reason I did it, so honestly, um, I, I grew up with immigrant parents. We didn't have a huge amount of money growing up. And at the time, they kind of had this dream that I would like always grow up and get into sort of like a, uh, a corporate career path with like safety and stability. And so um, I was kind of assessing career options at the time. I'd actually always personally been interested in in 
computers and computing. Um, but I felt that like law was like the like the safe, respectable career path, and so um, I decided to go down that and study study law in uh, college versus going down a sort of like a more technical route. Yeah, that's so interesting because I, at least for me, I sort of feel like it maybe again, it maybe it's really different in the UK. I'm not sure, but in the US, I feel like it's so much more lucrative to do like computer science than law, at least <laughs> today. So really, so what's interesting is that really wasn't the case, or at least it wasn't clear um, uh, to me when I was growing up. Um, so the, I'm making these choices. This is around um, kind of like early 2000s, right? Like late 90s, early 2000s. And at that time, it wasn't actually, there was a, a sort of a conventional wisdom at the time that programming jobs were mostly going in the direction of outsourcing and that um, kind of, you know, big Indian outsourcing companies were effectively going to flood the market with lots of software engineers and like the like the value per hour of, uh, of being a software engineer was going down and that like the real paths into making money were either in financial industry, um, like law or sort of management and, and all of this kind of more nebulous stuff, right? So it wasn't actually clear that if you want, if you were going for sort of wealth or compensation, that being a programmer was the right way to do it. And this was also specific somewhat to the UK where there just weren't many success stories of people who had either founded a successful technology company or been early employees as an engineer at one where they got stock options like that. That just wasn't really the way that people thought about um, um, kind of, you know, lucrative career paths and e and even the like the biggest example of a uh, UK successful technology company at the time that I remember uh, was lastminute.com and both of the founders of that company um, weren't especially sort of technical or at least they their public image wasn't as these like genius engineers it was sort of these great business people so in general I grew up in an environment where business success was thought of as like business was thought of its own discipline and the way you kind of got good at business was to do corporate management -y things yeah that's 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 fascinating i think it could have been more like that as well maybe in the early 2000s um I, i'm thinking also here with like the dot-com bubble i'm not i'm not quite sure because i was a bit a little bit younger than i wasn't weighing career options yet but i feel like maybe it was similar so I think the the single best piece of writing on just this as a cultural um, phenomenon or understanding it is um, the refragmentations, uh, an essay written by Paul Graham, my former employer at Y Combinator, um, who um, kind of just explains how a lot of the way that we thought about sort of career stability and the big corporate company was shaped by the sort of post World War periods and. Um, Kind of, it's it's a really good explanation at quite a level of detail about how we kind of went through a period of where big corporate companies and management and stability were the things that gave you sort of status and were viewed as the the prestigious career paths, and how we're kind of now emerging out of that into a world where startups and particularly technology-driven startups that can grow really quickly um, are becoming sort of the the new. Uh, badge of sort of prestige and, and credible career paths for people. Yeah, could you could you uh, name that again so we make sure the listeners hear it? Uh, I know you says by Paul Graham. Yep, it's called the refragmentation. The refragmentation. Okay, awesome. Thank you for sharing that again, and we'll make sure to link to that uh, in the show notes for all the listeners. So, okay, so so back. Okay, so you studied law and then you finished school. When did you? 
again, looking, I was looking at your LinkedIn. I see you had a few uh, companies that you started. Uh, when did you start your first, and when did you end up moving to uh, San Francisco? Yeah, so the exact the exact trajectory here is pretty much, honestly, within the first six months of starting my law degree, I realized it really wasn't like it wasn't really for me. Um, uh, I didn't really kind of enjoy the the kind of work that I was doing, which involved reading large amounts of text information and um, and kind of committing lots of stuff to memory and using that to sort of create um, arguments. And so, I within the sort of first six months started looking for more interesting things to do. Um, and I kind of came across at, uh, at college, there was like a an entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial group, which was just people who would meet up and throw around like ideas for sort of projects to work on. It really, it really wasn't so much like a, um, like a company building thing. It was just, hey, like this is an interesting idea. Wouldn't it be cool if we had this on, on campus? And so um, I started getting involved with that. And in my second year of college, um, started working on just a really simple website to help people at college buy or sell things to each other. Um, and at the time, Facebook was... Facebook or sort of social networks were just about becoming a, a popular thing. The face, Facebook was not the most popular one in the UK at that point. MySpace was. But the, um, uh, the interesting thing about it was we saw that uh, college email addresses could act as a verification of identity. We thought that college students like trading things with other students and would trust that they're not going to, you know, get ripped off in the same way that they might if it's a total stranger. So we effectively built a Craigslist on campus for college students verified with your college email address um, with sort of just like a a nicer design. um, And that actually started working pretty well. So that project just kept getting steam. We decided to launch it at some other colleges around the country. And everywhere we launched it, it got steam. It got a bit of press coverage. Um, and I just found that a lot more exciting than going into sort of a, a law firm post-graduation. So post-graduation, I actually dropped... A, Law school in England comes in two parts. You do your three-year undergraduate, and then you do two years of vocational training. And I dropped out after the three years um, to work on um, kind of my my buying and selling website full time, uh, which is called Boso, which is B O S O, which stands for BiosellOnline.com, and. We actually applied to Y Combinator um, immediately after I graduated um, for funding, which at the time was uh, somewhat odd because it. Y Combinator had never funded an international company before. They'd also never funded um, founders that didn't have technical backgrounds, whether it was computer science degrees or a programming background. Um, And so we were kind of just like a real long shot for them, but we met up. They liked us a lot. We liked them a lot. They said that if we can make it out to the US for three months, they'd happily fund us. Um, And we realized that the UK tourist visa let you come out for exactly three months. So we were like, that works. So we'll pack our bags, move out um, uh, to the Bay Area to go through the Y Combinator program in 2007 for three months and kind of see what happens. Okay, so 2007, you went out for three months, um, and that's the when you went and never came back. <laughs> the yes, first okay. basically. <laughs> well, I, I did come back because I didn't have a visa, so I, I was back and forth a lot. Um, but once I got once I got the visa, um, I stayed. Okay, and you said that was like the fall of 2007? Uh, so that was, uh, yeah, to the fall of 2007 is when I kind of got a visa, and then... Um, so we're missing a few beats here. We came out here in 2007 with this idea of we're building the Craigslist killer um, focused on 
college students. Um, we move out here and we realize that the idea we didn't feel was like big enough or ambitious enough. And we had office hours with Paul Graham. He basically helped us brainstorm and said that um, a more exciting opportunity would be for us to build e-commerce software for small businesses, um, helping them sell their items online because lots of them wanted to, but there was no easy way to do that. Um, so we actually, within three weeks of moving here, completely changed the company idea um, into something brand new, which is called Octomatic, which was building software to make it easy for small businesses to sell online. Um, we then teamed up um, with actually Patrick Collison, who's now the founder of Stripe, who uh, Paul had introduced us to as a good um, a good match for um, our skills uh, because Patrick was um, technical and kind of came on as a CTO. And um, we kind of like grew the company together and we sold it fairly quickly, actually. So the next, the following summer, um, we had been acquired by a Canadian company, Live Current Media, and I moved to Vancouver as part of that deal um, for just under a year before moving back to Silicon Valley uh, to work at Y Combinator. Wow. So that, okay, that's that's so exciting. Yeah. And, I'm, and again, I did like look at your LinkedIn and see some of these things, but I didn't have the whole backstory. So yeah, thank you for sharing. So you went to Vancouver for a year and was that like part of the deal or... Yes. So the idea at the time was an interesting period of time. Um, Live Current Media was this interesting company where um, it gone public and they had a lot of domains that were um, highly valuable, like e-commerce domains, things like perfume.com, beauty.com, body.com. Um, and they were getting lots of, lots of organic traffic to these domains from people who wanted to buy things, which is always like a hard thing to do when you're when you're building a marketplace is getting the the demand side of it. So they, they had that off the bat. What they didn't have was a good experience for sellers to upload their inventory, list their items, um, and sort of work with, with the buyers. And so we built all this great software for sellers to manage their inventory and post online. It was a very natural fit to just plug our software into what live current domains and build sort of vertical marketplaces, which we were really excited about. Um, what happened in sort of practicality is we landed in Vancouver literally five days uh, before Lehman Brothers um, uh, completely went under, which sent like sort of most of the world into like a state of panic. So uh, we kind of like joined just as this company was going in this, gone from this sort of ambitious growth mode, let's do all this new stuff into the world is ending, let's kill all new projects and just like make sure like well, we, we can survive. So it was like, it was like an interesting period of time. But um, I, I stay there for just under 12 months as we worked on some um, on a few products, integrating our software in. Um, uh, and then I left because ultimately I, I wanted to, be based in Silicon Valley where sort of everything happens technology wise. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. That's yeah. Again, also very interesting. And so you move back and then you become the first non-founding partner at Y Combinator. And I'm sure you could like talk about this for like hours or, or, or probably maybe write a book about it. Who knows? But, but like, how did you kind of get into that position? Like, how did that sort of happen? Especially at such a young age, I don't know what the average age is, but I feel like you're probably pretty young still at the time. Yeah, it was um, it was like a, a series of just serendipitous events, really. So exactly what happened is, um, so I'm kind of it's coming up towards the end of 2009. I'd left Live Current Media, our acquiring company. I knew that I wanted to work on another startup, so I'd actually made a trip back to the Bay Area for a month or so just to catch up with people and. I 
Um, I was kind of like grabbing lunch, I think, with Paul Graham and Jessica Livingston, who were the founders of Y Combinator. And at that time, Y Combinator was still very much a just a, a kind of like a, a project being run by Paul and Jessica. They didn't have any full-time employees between sort of funding rounds or batches of companies. Um, they would mostly kind of, you know, they would take vacations um, and there wasn't, there wasn't a huge amount going, going on because it was still a relatively small scale operation. Um, and I kind of, I was grabbing lunch. I was talking to them. I was saying, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm looking to go back to the UK just to see my family for a bit. And then I'm going to come back out here and start pursuing, um, some new startup ideas that I have with, um, with a few friends. And they were like, okay, that all sounds great. Like, let us know when you're back. Um, and you know, we, we kind of like, you know, like to help you out with all that stuff. Um, and so then Christmas that year, um, I get an email from Paul saying, We've actually we've been thinking about it, and we actually kind of want to be more ambitious with Y Combinator itself. We want to fund more startups. We want to grow um, the organization. To do that, I can I need to hire someone to see if sort of it scales having more than one person advising the startups. And so he asked me if I'd be interested in trying that out. Um, it was pretty informal; like there wasn't really a job description or a role description. Um, and I said, sure, that sounds great. Like I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do next. And this sounds like a great spot to do that. So um, I moved out or moved back out to the Bay Area officially in January 2010, uh, worked with sort of Paul and Jessica for a batch of Y Combinator for three months. And realized there was something really interesting happening at Y Combinator and ended up staying there for almost four years. Wow. Yeah, that's that's insane. That's like, it's so crazy. So there's like 2009 around there. Yeah, you said, or you maybe started in 2010 and then you were there for like three years. Yeah, uh, almost almost four years. Um, but when I, I guess the thing is when I, so you, the age thing is interesting. Like, you know, when I joined Y Combinator, I was 24 turning 25, um, which, so if you think of Y Combinator as like a, what it is now, hey, like a prestigious venture, sort of like a prestigious investor, um, that the, the age does seem somewhat unusual. It's worth remembering at the time, Y Combinator really didn't seem like an institution. Like it was Paul and Jessica funding people that had interesting project ideas and no really big companies had emerged from it. Like no one thought that Dropbox was, Dropbox or Airbnb were huge companies. They thought they were things that would likely maybe get acquired by a by a Google or someone. But it was it was still very much viewed as this sort of cool place where cool technical people hung out and worked on interesting projects. So it, it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't like it was that unusual for someone um, who was pretty young like me to to be joining there and working there. Yeah. And I well, I feel like I'm sure a lot of the companies that go through, I see, have some employees that are around that age, maybe even younger. I'm sure there's been a few that are even maybe 18 or something. I don't know if there's an age requirement. Yeah, I I don't think there's like a formal age requirement, but from from when I was working there, we were generally pretty reluctant to fund people under uh, younger than 18 with like uh, with few exceptions. Yeah, yeah. I feel like, yeah, that's a whole other like legal thing, at least with like, yeah. But okay, so okay, so I'm sure you did tons of stuff there. But what, again, looking at your LinkedIn, seeing like you would go through applications, you would interview people, you'd also work with um, companies going through the program at the time. Yeah, there were so yeah, there was why why companies actually ended up having um a kind of a broader range of things to do than I had expected. So there were, I would say the the core of it, like the core of working at Y Combinator um, at the time at least, was you know one 
read the applications like twi basically twice a year you're in application reading mode for a few weeks where you're doing nothing other than just reading all the funding applications then you're in like interview mode where you have like a couple of weeks of just back-to-back -back interviewing as many companies as you can and making decisions on which ones to fund and um and then you're sort of in batch mode. And during batch, you're mostly advising the companies on, you know, what their plan for the Y Combinator program should be, what metrics they should use to define if they're being successful or not, helping them come up with sort of ideas, giving product feedback. It's, it's all very focused on um, kind of getting them to prove the most um, evidence that they can the, about their company having potential to be successful as is possible in three months. Um, and so um, I kind of did a lot of that. But then also there was a lot of other stuff that was really interesting, like scaling Y Combinator itself. Like we knew we were getting more applications each round. We knew we would have to start changing the structure of the batches to accommodate an increasing number of companies that we wanted to fund. Um, and that that kind of stuff, like the, the challenges of scaling Y Combinator itself were the things that I, I found most interesting about working at Y Combinator. Sit tight, podcast listeners. We're taking a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Flatiron School's online web developer program equips you with the skills to get a job as a developer, guaranteed. You'll learn to code with real developer tools in a rigorous 800 plus hour curriculum that covers the programming languages you'll need on the job. Flatiron's 98% job placement rate and their job guarantee mean you can change careers with confidence. Flatiron is offering Learn to Co with Me listeners $500 off your first month of the program. Head to flatironbootcampprep.com to start learning to code and to redeem the discount when you apply. Again, the URL is flatironbootcampprep.com. Not ready for a coding bootcamp, but still want to learn how to code? Dive into JavaScript, Ruby, Swift, and HTML and CSS with Flatiron School's free online courses and certificate programs. Zoja was a cross-platform development tool for creating native apps for desktop, mobile, web, and Raspberry Pi. With Zojo, you really can write just one version of your app, say, on a Mac, click a button, and have a completely native Windows version too. Zoja lets you abstract yourself from specific platform details so you can focus on what makes your app unique. All apps have completely native controls, even if they weren't developed on that platform. Just use drag and drop to create your user interface in one language to program the functionality. Zoja was perfect for people who aren't programmers by trade, but who learn to program to make their jobs easier. Users also include Fortune 500 companies, commercial developers, IT developers, hobbyists, and students. Anyone who wants to build apps faster. Learn to Code With Me listeners get 20% off with the coupon code LEARN20. Try Zojo free at zojo.com forward slash learn to code. So I, I love talking about like your time at YC, but I definitely want to talk about the present day and um, what you're doing with Triple Byte. But I, yeah, so I guess like, how did you sort of transition out of being the partner at YC? And then how did you end up creating Triple Byte, which is very uh, relevant to listeners of this podcast, because essentially, you're helping people get engineering jobs at top companies? Yep. So um, the things are pretty linked, actually. So one, I kind of um, 
after sort of about three and a half years at Y Combinator, I knew that I wanted to um, uh, go back onto the other side of sort of founding and running a startup versus advising and investing in them. So um, I kind of had had a conversation internally with Paul and Jessica and said, you know, I think after the next batch, I'm going to look at um, kind of moving on. And I don't have a, um, I don't have like a, a specific thing I want to start just yet. But I first I wanted to take like a, a six month sabbatical to just clear my head and travel and do sort of various personal things I'd always wanted to do. Um, and then when I got back, um, I started talking to some friends of mine who had also gone through the Y Combinator program with SocialCam, uh, which is a startup that was acquired by Autodesk. And we were generally talking about just things that we found interesting. And my co-founders, um, Armon and Guillaume, and Armon in particular, um, were really interesting cases where Armon is a really fantastic engineer, um, was one of the top engineers at, um, at Justin.tv, which became Twitch, and um, then sort of spun out SocialCam. And, and Armon and Guillaume were able to scale SocialCam to 100 million users with just the two of them. So really top quality engineers, but neither of them had sort of great resume credentials. Like Armon hadn't gone to a top school. Guillaume had moved out here from France. And when they first came to Silicon Valley to get jobs as engineers, they really struggled. And the, the reason they ended up at Justin.tv was Justin.tv at the time um, was not like a prestigious company that everyone wanted to work at. So they couldn't compete for the best people, like or at least the best people on paper. Um, and the way their hiring strategy was to try and find people that didn't have great resumes, but might be really good and just take a chance on them. And so they took a chance on Armon and Guillaume, um, worked out really well for them. And in that conversation, I was kind of just talking about how Y Combinator itself did the same thing for startup founders. That you know, if you if you were already in Silicon Valley, if you already had connections to venture capitalists and angel investors because you went to Stanford or you'd already started a company, then you didn't have need for something to help you or vouch for you. Um, but if you're a really talented person in sort of uh, you know Chicago with no connections to the to the Bay Area. You, you needed someone to vouch for you to get into that community, which is what Y Combinator did. And so through all these conversations, we basically decided that there was obviously a real need for um, helping companies like find the best people because every company that would graduate Y Combinator would complain they couldn't get enough engineers. Um, we felt that companies overly focused on the credentials versus trying to test for the skills of candidates. And that kind of makes sense because companies don't have the time to test the skills of every single person who applies. Um, and then drawing analogies to Y Combinator, we felt that there was role, there was room for a company to exist that just evaluated the skills of engineers and used that to match engineers to companies that might not otherwise have spoken to them. Um, and as a byproduct, we, that company would gather lots of data about what every company is hiring for and how to run a really great uh, technical interview process and like all of those ideas came together into triple white effectively. Yeah, that's oh, that's so that's such a good story. I mean, I love yeah, and I think no, I think I think you're so right. But at the same time, of course, having connections and you know who you know is very important. But I love that you guys are just focusing on the skills. So could you? I was going through the website a bit and I was reading somewhere that only 1% of applicants who come to Triple Byte make it through the technical evaluation. So like what, it, just, you know, in brief, like what is the technical evaluation? How did you create it? And what makes it so tough? 
Yep. So uh, the technical evaluation is split into two parts. One is an online programming test where um, you answer multiple choice questions that involve looking at short snippets of code and identifying what's going on effectively. And the second part is you do a technical interview, um, which is done over Google Hangouts with an engineer on our team. And we're actually building out a dedicated interviewing team. And that interview is done again without the, without the interviewer knowing anything about your background or um, credentials. You just work on solving programming problems. Um, and at the end of that, we effectively kind of grade you across different a set of different criteria and make a call on whether we think we have enough companies that would value the strengths you have enough to to bring you on site and likely make an offer. Um, so that's the te- that's the technical evaluation part. the The way that we've designed it is kind of interesting. Like there, the way we designed the automated programming test was actually to. Put together first version was our best guess at what we thought a uh, effective programming test might look like. Give that to all of our friends who we already knew were good engineers. See how well they did on it, and then also just get a random sample of people from Craigslist to answer the test. And at a high level, just check that a random sample of people did worse than you know a group of people that were selected as being good engineers. Um, and we found that was true. So we're like, okay, this works with sort of sufficient precision for us to use as our first pass filter on um, whether we think someone might be a good engineer or not. Um, And then what we actually did when we launched the company is for the first month, we said that anyone, um, anyone who kind of makes it through the programming test we will just do the first 300 people, we will just do technical interviews with um, without knowing anything about how you actually did on the test. Um, all we knew is that you didn't completely fail it. And um, we will do the technical interviews. And if you do well on the technical interviews, um, we'll vouch for you to uh, companies where we have friends who are hiring and say, hey, like we did a technical interview with this person. We really think you should um, take a look at them. And um, what we did after that first month is go back and analyze, okay, we did 300 technical interviews and we have all the data on how these people did on our programming test. Let's see if there are correlations here. Like, can we tell if how well you do on the test predicts how well you're going to do on our technical interview? And we found the results that were really compelling, where it turned out that our test was really predictive and since over the last year, we've effectively repeated this process and specifically which questions have the most predictive value. And we keep those questions, we throw out the rest, replace them with new ones and keep going until the test just gets more and more predictive of how likely someone is to be a good engineer. Yeah, that's that's so fascinating. So when you when you talk about the, you're, so you're talking about both the technical tests that you're doing like on Google Hangouts and then also the multiple choice one, yes. right? Okay. Yes. And then how long does the technical interview like the um the the Google Hangout one? How long does that last? So the Google uh, the Google Hangouts usually last um, for just over two hours. Oh wow! And this is and so everyone who makes it through this first written test or whatever the, the online test is invited to the to the second one yes effectively well we filter out well the drop-off comes in that um we filter out the majority of applicants at the programming test stage so the majority of people are being filtered out because they didn't um sort of perform strongly enough on the online programming test for us to think that it would be 
a good idea for us to do a technical interview with them. Of the of the remainder that we do identify, which usually ends up being around 20% of all of the test completes, is to do the technical interview with them. And again, of those, we end up selecting a small percentage to actually move forward with and introduce to companies. So, yeah, I was going to ask you about that, about introducing a company. So, okay, so assume the candidate, they go through this online test, they go through the technical interview, um, which is online, and it's like about two hours long. The, uh, assuming they do well, what kind of happens next for them? Yeah, so what, what happens next is, based on the technical interview, we have pretty rich data on what skills that engineer has. So actually, I'll answer this in a slightly high-level way. What we found when we launched the company is that there isn't really a clear spectrum of being like, you know, uh, a bad engineer through to a great one. And you just figure out where to set the sort of cutoff and everyone who's above that bar will get hired by every company you introduce them to. Like what ends up happening in reality is that there are lots of dimensions along which you can be a good engineer, right? Like you could be someone who's really thoughtful and writes well-designed code, but isn't necessarily like um, productive like or like speed-wise. Like you won't be the fastest coder in the world. Um, and what we found is that no one is great at absolutely everything. And although companies will tell you that they're looking to hire people who are great at everything you could possibly be great at, in reality, every company is making a trade-off. Like every company is deciding whether they're aware of it or not, that they value, for example, coding speed more than great design, or that they value academic computer science knowledge more than the ability to fix bugs quickly on a laptop um, in, during an interview, right? So what we're doing is we get lots of data about every engineering candidate who comes through TripleByte on what their strengths are. And on the flip side, we sort of interview every company before we work with them and have the current engineering team complete a technical questionnaire that gives us a pretty accurate model of the trade-offs we think that company is making. Um, and based on those two data sets, we can then tell any given TripleByte engineer, hey, we think that these nine companies are going to be a really good fit for the skills that you have because you are really strong on algorithm design and um, understanding how uh, a web system works. And we have these nine companies who care a lot about that. And so you're very likely to be a good fit for them. And then we sort of start the process of explaining what those companies do. The candidate opts in or engineers opt into the companies they're most excited about. And the ones that they are excited about take an initial call with them and then fast track them through their hiring process to the final round on-site interview. Oh, wow. Okay. So, the, okay. So I have like so many questions from what you just said, but they, okay. How, so, so, so this, this candidate, how many companies do they end up interviewing with at once? Like, it it depends on on obviously every candidate and kind of how much time they have and how much they how many they want to do. But our generally what we encourage candidates to do is take an initial call with five companies, um, filter those five companies down to the three that they're most excited about going on site with, doing three on site interviews, um, and then kind of deciding between on average about two offers, which is roughly what we we can generally get candidates. Um, 
at least sort of from three on sites, uh, two offers, and sort of decide from decide from there. Um, and some can some some engineers will like you know talk to more companies because they want to make sure that they they run a, a really deep thorough process. Um, some might talk to less because they have a very specific idea of what they want and they only want to talk to companies within that range. Um, but that's that's kind of roughly what the the flow looks like. Okay. Yeah, that's that's so awesome. So okay. So got your got your recommendations with that. Now, how long does this take? And what I mean, I mean from like the time they sign up on TripleByte. Of course, I know companies are different and may have longer like interview processes or like take longer to um, make offers and what have you. Um, but you also said that after they go through your process, they're usually on a phone call and then fast track to the um, to the onsite interview. So like about. How much time in average does it take a person? So from signing up with TripleByte, um, you can do the programming test pretty much immediately. On average, it takes about, I'd say, sort of three to four days to book a technical interview with us. Once you do the technical interview, um, often what actually ends up being the bottleneck is more on um, the engineer side. So you need to set aside some time to do the on-site interviews. But the, the companies we work with, and we, we specifically select companies that are responsive and have a, a process that's efficient and can move people through quickly, because we find that's the thing that's most important for like a a good experience for a, for an engineer on the TripleByte platform is companies that are responsive and can move quickly. So all in all, once we've introduced you to companies, we can actually have offers within 10 days um, uh, and then sort of you're in decision-making mode and you take as, as long as you would like. But uh, our goal is to compress that, is to make the job search process as efficient as possible because one, we can filter companies that are likely to make you an offer versus having you waste your time interviewing at companies that just were never going to be a skills match. Um, and two, we filter for companies that are fast, responsive, and you also far get fast track through to the final round interview versus doing coding screens or phone screens. And so throughout this person's interview process, like after you screen them, I, I guess it could only be like 10 days if, if that's when they're getting an offer made. Do you repeatedly like kind of follow up with that candidate throughout? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. We um, we spend a lot of time at that stage. We view ourselves as a resource to help um, candidates get the support they need. So if that's, if that's sort of, you know, helping them schedule the interviews, if that's answering questions about moving to the Bay Area, um, if that what, whatever whatever it is, we are in constant contact and doing like our best to help them uh, have a hassle-free job search process. And yeah, I guess at the, it should be noted that this is only available in the San Francisco area at this time. Yeah, at the, at the moment, but early next year, we'll be opening up to some new locations. That's awesome. Could you tell anyone which or what you have in mind for the locations? Yeah, we're looking. We're looking at moving into Seattle, uh, New York, um, and Chicago. So, are most of the people that go through TripleByte already based in those locations, or are there also people like who are like, "Yes, I, I will. I want to relocate. Let's do this," and then go through it? Uh, so, I would say most. Most of the candidates, it, it, it's a slight, it's a slight fraction more, um, are kind of based in the Bay Area or around the Bay Area, um, but a significant chunk are outside of the Bay Area and looking to be moved and looking to move out to the Bay Area to to sort of join a, a traditional Silicon Valley company. 
All right, that's awesome. I yeah, I love. I honestly could ask you like so many more questions. You start talking about because I think it's, it's so fascinating. But we are towards the end. We're at pretty much out of time. So finally, Harsh. Okay, well, thank you so much for talking and sharing uh, your story and all this information about Triple Bite and how you guys vet candidates and in the job process. Uh, lastly, where can people find you online? Um, the best way to reach me personally, I use Twitter a lot. So feel free to tweet me. Um, uh, my handle is at Harjeet, um, H-A-R-J-E-E-T. Um, uh, my email is Harj, H-A-R-J, at triplebyte.com. Um, and obviously, if you want to learn more about Triplebyte, then uh, check out our website. Awesome. Thank you so much again for coming on. Cool. No worries. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Again, the show notes for this episode plus a full transcript can be found at learntocodewith.me forward slash podcast. If you're listening to this episode in the future, simply click the search icon in the upper navigation of the page and type in Harj's name. It's spelled like H-A-R-J and then his last name is like T A. G-G-A-R. Regardless, if you liked my interview with Harj, head on over to learntocodewith.me where you can find even more awesome code-related content, like my 10 free tips for teaching yourself how to code. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I'll see you next week in the final episode of season two.